0: Welcome in. So glad that you would join us again here on a Sunday as we go live as a church. You're having church at home again this Sunday, but here's the good news. Uh, as you know, and you've been watching anything, you've been seeing things that have happened on the news... You have realized that the shift is kind of beginning to take place, and the conversation is actually beginning to move towards reopening. And I want you to know that we, as a church, uh, we've beginning to pray about that. We've begin to put plans in place on that. We came out this week and we kind of released what our three-phase plan was going to look like. And if you haven't got a chance to look at that, go join our Facebook group. We posted that all on there. You can reach out, and we'll give you all those details. But I wanted to say something about that to give a little bit more clarity to help you understand really our heart behind the decision that we're trying to make. First and foremost, I want you to know this. The decisions that we're making about how to to lead in this very uncertain time are decisions that we are doing everything in our ability to make based out of faith and not fear. A lot of people could go, hey, you know, we're going to open up too soon because maybe we're worried about whether or not people are staying connected or we're worried whether or not people are going to continue to give or we're worried about whether or not we're actually going to be able to reach new people. But here's the deal. We've actually seen in this season the exact opposite of all those fears come to fruition. We've seen us actually be able to reach more people than we've ever been able to reach before as a church. We've actually seen our faithfulness in giving as a church go up. And that has blown my mind. So uh, celebrate yourself. Well done, church. That is amazing. And the other thing that I love is I love how connected we are actually becoming through this. Now, again, I don't think this is a long-term fix. I don't think this is where we go forever. But I love how flexible, how unstoppable you are as a church. And that's what we're diving into today. We're continuing on in our series, Unstoppable, and my hope is that you would begin to even now go like, comment, share this out, because what we're diving into today is the first sermon that was ever preached in the church. And I'm going to do my best to be able to allow this sermon to be as powerful as it was then, powerful you for you right now. And so we're going to dive into this, I'm going to pray, we're going to open up God's Word, and we're going to see what He has for us today. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you have gathered us together in a place like this, God, a place like a home, a place like a car, a place uh, like maybe a business that is just now beginning to open up and we're watching and we're, we're leaning in because, God, we are desperate for hope in this time. We're desperate for answers, God, maybe some of our big questions about life that we had kind of pushed and put on a shelf, God, we're beginning to bring those back out. God, maybe we're beginning to ask questions like, what does this life really mean? And and what really happens if if I was to not wake up tomorrow? Like, what, what happens after someone dies? God, we are all at this place where we're beginning to be more contemplative. And I think, God, you are positioning our hearts to be able to hear from you. And I pray that that is exactly what you're going to be doing today. In your name, amen. So, we're in this series called Unstoppable, and what we're doing in this series is we're diving into the book of Acts. Uh, today, we're going to be in Acts 2. We're going to be leaning into the first sermon that Jesus, or that Peter, ever preached. And what I need you to know, give you a little bit of backstory, some recap of what's happened thus far. So, Jesus, if you're, you're very new to all this, Jesus uh, was a Son of God. He came and he lived his life. And he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross and then he rose again. And in between the time where he rose again and then he ascended back into heaven, he met and he talked with uh, his closest friends and followers and he told them that they were going to be part of this movement that he was going to start that was going to affect the world, even to right now was going to affect the world. But that was not going to be able to happen unless the Holy Spirit was received by them. Where we pick up today, the Holy Spirit has actually uh, fallen and filled this group of 120 male and female followers, friends of Jesus, and they are allowing what the Spirit has done inside of them to now go out into the people who are around. There's this giant uh, festival, uh, the, P- the Pentecost festival, where there were people from all over th- this region, and they're coming in thousands of people celebrating at this festival, and the Holy Spirit falls in wind and fire, and then these people start speaking in all these different languages, the 120 start speaking in these languages and they're not just talking to talk, they're speaking of Jesus. They're proclaiming the gospel and what's beautiful about this is they are preaching the gospel for the first time ever in ways that people could actually understand it, in ways that it could actually get to the people who need to hear it and I think that is so cool to think about that happening then because that, guys, is actually what's happening now. The gospel, who was maybe unable to get to people before, is now actually getting to them by us doing things like sharing posts, us doing things like inviting people into Zoom calls. And I I love how the gospel is spreading. So we're going to pick up our story in verse 12. We're going to read verse 12 and 13 together. This is going to be one of those messages where you absolutely need your Bible. Again, it's the first sermon ever preached. We're going to dive in. There's a lot to unpack. This is a live stream, but today it is not going to be a lazy river live stream. This is going to be more of like we're going down class three or four rapids. So get your helmet on. Make sure your life vest is buckled up. And let's get into God's word today. This is verse 12. It says, Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them. They have had too much wine. Okay, so Luke accounts that the people saw all this 120 uh, group of Jesus' disciples speaking all these other languages, and the people look on, and they are amazed and perplexed. They're like, what in the world? Like Those people are Galilean rednecks, and they're speaking my language and my dialect. What is happening? So there's a group of people who are amazed and perplexed. They're not understanding what's going on, and they're kind of bewildered. And then there's this other group of people. It says, some, some however. There's always some some howevers in life, aren't there? They made fun of them. They're joking about it. They're picking fun at them. They're making fun of them. They're they're textbook haters. And and what happens with them is is because it's about 9 in the morning, these people are going, they have had too much wine. Because for them, and again, you've got to remember, they're speaking a different language. What some of them would be hearing if the group of 120 weren't speaking their language is just kind of incoherent babble. And so they're hearing this and going, ah, these people are just trash. They're, 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 they're wasted. And I love what happens next. And in this f- short few verses that happen next, we learn some key things about what happens when you have the Holy Spirit. The first thing that we see when you have the Holy Spirit is this. You do not listen to labels. When you have the Holy Spirit, you don't listen to labels that other people put on you. See, there was this group of people, and they were essentially just your textbook haters. They, they had all of this religion, and their religion was so full inside of them that it didn't leave enough room for God to actually do miraculous things. And so something was happening around them that was outside of what they would expect. It was outside of their tradition. It was new to them, and because it was so new to them and so unexpected to them, they couldn't get a handle on the power that they were experiencing. They instead just slapped a label on it and said, These guys are drunk. And what's crazy here is what's actually happening is is these men and women are proclaiming the gospel, again, for the very first time, to people in ways that they can actually understand, but these people label them as drunk. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, but there's a group of people who give them a false label. And in our lives, and you've probably had this happen to you, people are quick to give us false labels. People are quick to label us things based off of what they see us doing or what they see us lining ourselves up with? What are some of the false labels that maybe you've gotten in your life? Now some of these, let's be honest, some of these labels, they may actually be things that you gave you. Because some of the mistakes that you may have think earned that label are only things that you know. Maybe for you, you've been labeled an adulterer. Maybe for you, you've been labeled an addict. Maybe for you, you've been labeled a failure. Maybe for you, you've been labeled as not quite as good as your brother or sister. See, the world is really quick to give us labels. Satan is really quick to make sure those labels are put on us with gorilla glue that can never come off. But what I need you to understand here is what I believe these people were getting at. See, the world, when they give us these labels, They give us these labels and with a label also comes a narrative, also comes a story of because you being this, this is the story that your life should look out with. This is the narrative that you should follow if this is what you are. And see, one of Satan's best tricks to get us to fail in our faith is to try to get us to reapply old labels that Jesus' blood removed and washed off. But see, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, what other people may try to label us no longer matter. Because you've seen this, you've experienced this. Man, if you've really started to take some bold steps in your faith, like these guys are about to do, you've had people kind of look at you crazy. Some of them have gone, ah, give them a month or two, it'll fade out. Or they've looked at what you've started to do and gone, man, you're just a hypocrite. Like four weeks ago, I saw you at that party. Four weeks ago, I saw you at Applebee's trash. Five weeks ago, I I saw you, you know, posting those things on social media. I I don't know if what's really going on is what's really going on. And see, that's, that's what happens. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the labels stop mattering. And my question to you is what labels are you leaving on that Jesus died to wash off? And the Holy Spirit wants to remove that. The next thing that we actually see here, and it's in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, it says that. That Peter, you know, these guys are saying, you're drunk. And Peter, again, Peter has got some gospel gangster kind of going on in him. Because if you know a little bit about Peter, he, he was the guy who was the bravest. He was the guy who would stand up and, and do some things. But at the same time, man, Peter was the guy who, who made a buffoon of himself a lot of times. There's no other disciple who uh, Jesus looked at and said, get behind me, Satan. And so if, if Jesus is calling you Satan, like you're actually kind of pretty low on this totem pole of like being the, the teacher's pet. But what we see is actually because now of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit filling Peter up, there is this mix of instead of pride and bravery, what you see is what God can do when he gets a man or woman of God and they have this beautiful combination of humility and bravery. And man, I'm praying that some saints of God, some men and women of God will rise up with bravery and humility in a season like this. And so, with a mix of bravery and humility, Peter, it says in in verse 14, it says, And Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. He said, Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people, they are not drunk. As you suppose, it's only 9 in the morning. In essence, Peter is saying, guys, you're drunk to think they're drunk. It's 9 a.m. We're a a group of 120 devout Jews. Yeah, none of us are drinking right now. And I want you to see uh, three more things about what happens when the Holy Spirit fills somebody up. The first thing I want you to understand here is this. When you have the Holy Spirit, you stand up, you team up, and you speak up. And we see this right here in, in verse 14. Look what it says. If you're the if type of person that underlines your Bible, underline this. It says, then Peter stood up. And man, this verse is beautiful. And, and if you're anything like me, and at times in your life you feel like a bag of contradictions, you feel like someone who takes three steps forward and five steps backwards, man, let Peter give you some hope. Because when the Holy Spirit began to fill him up, his life changed. And one of the things that's beautiful about how his life changed is the things that he used to be afraid of, he is no longer afraid of. See, if you remember Peter's story, like, Peter was this guy, and the night that his best friend Jesus was on trial, was arrested already, Peter is warming his hands alongside of a fire, kind of watching at a distance as his discipling guy, Jesus, is out there getting ready to go to a cross. And he's warming his hands by a fire, and a servant girl, a middle school age girl, walks up to him and says, Hey man, I'm pretty sure uh, that you're with Jesus, right? Right? And Peter eventually, you know the story, he he ends up calling down curses, swearing to God, saying, "I, I don't know Jesus. And what we see in this moment, here in Acts, is this man who was even intimidated by a little girl, is now standing in front of the very same people who crucified his friend, and he's speaking in bravery. See, there comes a time in all of our lives, if we are actually going to be filled with the Spirit, if we're going to move forward in the gospel, there comes a time when we no longer can sit down anymore. There comes a time when we actually have to do like Peter and stand up. Stand up for what we believe in. Stand up for who is behind us. Stand up for what we represent as followers of Christ. And stand up for what the gospel is compelling us to do. And hear me on this, before you go rah, rah, rah and start a revolt, oftentimes for us as Christians, what it means for us when we stand up is not that we become the primary, Is actually that we lay stuff down and take a knee and do even maybe like what Jesus told Peter to do when he took out his little sword and saw that he was going to protect Jesus that way and say, hey, Peter, lay down your arms. If I, if I needed to, I could call down a legion of armies, but I need you to be in humility right now and let God's plan work. So the first thing we learn, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to stand up. The next thing is we see that he actually teams up. I love this passage, man. It says, then Peter stood up with the 11, and it's like you just got to go from seeing this group of terrified disciples shelter in place, quarantine in a room, and now because of this gift of the Holy Spirit that I'm praying your heart would be open to, Now, you got Peter kind of standing up front, and then he's got just 11 of his ride-or-die boys behind him just going, Bring it, Peter! And there's just something about that that maybe as a guy, maybe as someone who's played team sports, there's something that fires me up about this. Because again, Peter and the 11, they're all looking people who are familiar that were in the crowd chanting crucify for their best friend. And now they're standing there brave. They're standing there tough. And see, that's the thing that happens when the Holy Spirit, the things that you used to be afraid of are no longer fearful to you. And at the same time, what I believe is that Peter did not just have the Holy Spirit, Peter also had the Holy Spirit in each and every one of the 11 guys who were behind him. And so my question to you, when the Holy Spirit convicts you to stand up, Who will be standing up behind you? Will there be anybody standing up behind you? Do you have an 11? Do you have a 3? Do you even have a 1? See, this this, this Holy Spirit gospel movement that Jesus invites us in gives us the Holy Spirit for. It was never meant to be done alone. This is the reason why for us, you know, the, the target number that we set for community groups as a church has essentially been 12. Because our hope is that every one person would find in the, in the place of a community group, a place where they can stand up when the Holy Spirit leads them to stand up. And then standing behind them would be 11 members who are ready to go wherever the Holy Spirit may lead. So when the Holy Spirit fills you, you stand up, you team up. And the next thing we see is that you actually speak up. And maybe for some of you, this is the thing is if you tried to stand up and you voted a certain way or you've done a certain thing or you've gone to church and you've come and done this, but maybe for you right now the thing is, man, I need to actually speak up. I need to start saying some things. I need to understand the implications that my words can actually have. I need to start speaking truth. I need to expel some of the lies that are going on around me in the same way that Peter did here. And he goes on, after he begins to stand up, team up, and speak up, Peter explains what's actually going on here to these people who are like, what in the world is happening? The people who are making fun of them, saying you guys are trash. Peter explains what's going on, and I want you to be able to see some key things in how he explains and what he explains is actually happening here. So if you've got a Bible, uh, we're gonna jump into verse 16, all right? Acts chapter two, verse 16. Peter starts his explanation. He says this, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So he is getting in with these guys, who are this, this giant crowd who is around them, he is connecting with them on their level. Again, the majority of the people in this crowd, they are people who believe in a God. They believe in Yahweh. They are Jewish, most of them probably devout Jewish people, who had... The majority of the Bible, who had everything except the gospel, again, in their day and age, they did not have the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and all this other type of stuff. They had the Old Testament at that point, and they were religious about reading it. And so Peter meets them where they are, and in the very first sermon, starts with Scripture. And he goes through, and he says this. This was spoken by the prophet Joel, a guy they would have been familiar with. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Underline all. All people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. See, what's happening right here is Peter is explaining that what you see happening is what the prophet Joel prophesied would happen. And what I love about this, and this, I wish I had time to deep dive into all this, but I want you to see the main thing that I I think Peter is getting at here is the inclusivity and the multiracial and the, the ethnic backgrounds that are represented in this 120. I think he is trying to explain to them that when God's Spirit comes, it is a Spirit that is for all people. It's not a Spirit that is for men. It's not a Spirit that is just for women. It's not a Spirit that's for people who are old, people who are young, people who are rich, people who are poor, people of this ethnicity or racial background, or people who have this. It says God's Spirit, when it falls, and this is what you are seeing happening, it is for everyone. And it's something that can come to everyone, and it's something that can work through everyone. And that is powerful to know about the Holy Spirit. He finishes in this illustration and taking them back to the book of Joel. In verse 21, if you, you can drop down, it's not going to be on the screen, but I want you to drop down. Look at verse 21. I want you to connect something here. He explains this to them. In the verse 21, he says, All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord. So make the connection between where he starts. So he starts out and he says, The Spirit has come so that all may be able to receive it. And then he connects that very same thought back together at the end and says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're taking notes, I want you to understand this, and this is one of the key points in Peter's sermon, that it is an all call, that it is one of those things where everybody can call. That regardless of your mistakes, regardless of your sins, regardless of your past, all can call. And my question to you right now, where you're at right now, and again, we're all facing a whole lot of uh, different things, different confusion, different doubts, different fears, different things that have got us frustrated. My question to you right now is if Peter says, all who call on the Lord will be saved, is there something right now other than the Lord that you are calling on and hoping will save you? I know I've had seasons in my life where I was hoping relationships would save me, I've had seasons in my life where I was hoping security would save me. I've had seasons in my life where I thought um, me being the most popular person in the room and the most accepted person in the room would be the thing that would save me. But what is it for you? What is the thing that you find yourself calling on maybe more than the Lord, maybe more than Jesus? I think Peter would say, all who call on the Lord will be saved. But outside of that, There's no hope. He goes on in verse 22 and 23. He he makes a turn from explaining this thing, connecting them to this Old Testament, explaining, hey, this is what's going on with these tongues happening. And he says, I want you to understand now the main point. And the main point is Jesus. And verse 22, this is what he says. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. unpack that a little bit for you. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you already knew. You watched Jesus do the miracles. There was no denying uh, that that Lazarus rose from the grave. Those spread like wildfire everywhere Jesus went. There were crowds of thousands. None of you guys in this crowd could refute the fact that Jesus did miracles. And every one of those miracles pointed to the fact that he was God. And you've spent years and years and years denying that fact. But the reality is, he's God. And you've probably done this in your life too. Because, man, I have. We come into church, we see people's lives radically and miraculously changed. I love being able to hear some of the testimonies from people in MCC and hearing stories that I'd never heard before about how they came to this church with so much baggage. They, they came to this church, or maybe even there was just a spouse coming to this church, and they're at home still mired in addiction. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit is working on them, and, and now they're, they're involved in church. They're elders in the church. They're working, and they're ministering to people, and the Holy Spirit is using them to see other people come to Christ. And the same way, man, it's, it's so easy for us to deny how Jesus can work miracles. But what he's trying to explain to them here is you've seen Jesus move. Don't move around the fact that you've seen Jesus move. In verse 23, he makes it personal. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You know, this is like the most unseeker sensitive sermon ever. You know, Peter has got this crowd of thousands and thousands of people and, you know, popular preaching mechanics would tell you, "Hey, man, when you have the big crowd, preach to the crowd. You want everybody to feel good, you want them to come back next week." Peter says, "I've got a crowd of 3,000 people here, and I'm going to let them know the reality that they killed Jesus." he doesn't make any bones about it. I mean, look at the verse. Look at 22 and 23. How many, how many times does he say you in these two verses? He said, accredited to God by, Accredited to you by miracles God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, he's talking about the Roman government there, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross but it doesn't stop there. And thank goodness that that is not where it was allowed to stop. Look at verse 24. It says, you did all these things, but God, but God. Somebody write but God in the comments. But God. I love the but gods in the Bible. The fact that they are all over the place when we mess up, when we screw up, but God in steps and does some miraculous things. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. How, uh, this is a thick, thick verse, and I want to do my best to unpack some of the things specifically that are in verses 23 and 24. First of all, let's walk through 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus now was a man accredited by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs God did among you through him. He's saying, The fact that there were miracles proves that he was God. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Okay, hold, 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 hold up. Well, then aren't we off the hook? Like if it was God's plan and it was foreknowledge from God? Let me explain this to you. Just because God has a plan and God has foreknowledge doesn't mean that you do not have a part to play And making that plan painful, broken, and sinful. Because here's the deal. Also part of God's plan is the fact that you and me would have choice and aren't robots. But we are given this free choice to be able to love him, follow the right path, or not love him and follow a wrong path. But what's beautiful about God and what this verse is pointing to is that God, despite our sin, despite our mistakes, despite us trying to mess up his plan and do it our way, he had foreknowledge and he worked things together, not just for our good, but for the good of all mankind. And that's what this verse is pointing to. He says, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead Key word there, and this is going to be repeated. So anytime uh, a a preacher is preaching and he repeats something, uh, there's, there's importance there. He says, God raised him from the dead. Again, making the point that Jesus wasn't just watching the countdown clock and going, okay, three days are over, and I'm raising up. God raised him. The Father's love raised up his son, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. See, I want to unpack that word, impossible. Impossible. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. If someone were to ask you right now, why was it impossible for death to keep its hold on him? Would you have any idea how to answer that? Now again, you could just go, why was it impossible for death to keep its hold on him? Well, uh, he was Jesus. Yes, I mean, technically, yes. But I want to explain this to you because I think it will help you understand some things about Jesus that maybe you don't realize yet. See, we read a verse like this, and we come out of an Easter season, and I think it's really easy to get so caught up in the fact that Jesus did resurrect from the dead. Like, he resurrected. And man, hear me, I'm not bashing anybody for getting caught up in the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's amazing, that's beautiful. But I think sometimes we forget the fact that it was just as miraculous that he rose from the dead, that he lived a completely perfect life from birth all the way through 33 years, and they hung him on the cross, and we overlook this fact that Jesus spent his time on earth as 100% man. Someone just like me, thoughts like me, walked like me, just like you, feels the same pressure, feels the same anxiety, felt like what it was like to have a friend betray him, felt like what it was like to have even family members mock him and laugh at him. He felt all those things and did not sin. And he lived that perfect life, and then he died. And so when he lives that perfect life and dies, what happens then, and this is why it says it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him, is God, as he sees his son who lived this perfect life and died, you've got to understand this. When sin entered the world, God made it very clear that the punishment for sin was what? Death. The punishment for sin is death. But here's the deal, again, making this make sense. Jesus did not sin. And so when it says that it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, what that means is it would have been outside of the character and the personality and who God is as a loving and caring and just father to allow his son to experience the death and decay that is supposed to happen because of sin because there was no sin in his son. That's the gospel. And that's why it was impossible for him to stay dead. Now I want you to understand where you come into play in this. And this is what Peter was trying to explain to these people. He says, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And and through that, he was freed from the agony of death. I want you to understand something in regards to your sin. Because what happens now is Jesus, through raising victoriously from the grave because of his perfect substitutionary life for us in the same way that the punishment for sin was death it's the same for us and all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God every single one of us the level playing field because of sin is real No matter how long you've been a saved person, no matter how long you've been living a life of sin, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's what's beautiful, and this is why I think sometimes we don't understand and grasp. Take whatever sin you're struggling with right now all of those sins ultimately lead to death. For, so, so for some of you, it's control. Some of you, it, it's worry. Some of you, it's anxiety. Some of you, it's lying. Some of you, it, it's, it's, it's the ability that, to, to be able to steal. And some of you, it's, it's just different things. And all of those sins lead to death. But what I want you to understand is this, is that when Jesus freed us from sin through his perfect life, you no longer have not just the ability to be freed from things that would lead to death, but you have the ability to be freed from death altogether and that comes through putting faith in God that comes through putting faith in what Jesus did as he rose from the grave. This passage goes on and he goes to verse twenty five in verse twenty five what he does is he, he's he is he quotes this this verse that the king david wrote and king david was a guy who all these people in the audience they would have respected they would love this guy and so uh, he goes and he quotes what he says if you got a bible you can read it right there in in starting in verse 25 He, he says david said this about him and again he's saying david said this about jesus i saw the lord always before me because he is at my right hand i will not be shaken Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. The Holy One there, that is Jesus. He says, you have made known to me the paths of life and you fill me with joy in your presence. He's quoting Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. And I think uh, the Holy Spirit ordained this message to be during this season because uh, what I learned in studying this is Psalm 16 is actually one of the primary coronation psalms. We're going to put that word coronation up on there. And you tell me what word you see in coronation. A word that we're seeing everywhere. A word that has shifted our lives Within the word coronation, what this psalm would have been singing about in coronation, if you know it's, it's talking about a crown. These were one of the songs that, that would have been sang as, as, as the crown was being given to David. It was one of the kingly, one of the royal psalms. And even in this psalm, there's prophecy about who Jesus is. And I want you to not miss what's being said here, because I think in this coronation psalm, there are truths that we can lean into in this Corona season, that because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, verse 25, you will not be shaken. Verse 26, your heart can be glad... You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Man, if there is ever something for us to begin to pray during the corona season, it is this coronation psalm that Peter, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings into account as the Holy Spirit is beginning to kickstart this movement that we're a part of right now, right here. He goes on, as he's explaining David, he, he's essentially making the point that, that David's body went into the ground, decayed, and, and David died. Even your best guy, even your hero, even your, your superstar, he's dead. But Jesus is not. And what he's making here, this point is that all other religions, all other gods, little g, they have a grave. Muhammad has a grave. There's a grave for all the other guys. There's a, there's a grave out there. But the difference between other gods and the God Jesus is that his grave is empty. And that's what Peter is trying to help them understand. And he's making the point now that Jesus is God. He goes on in verse 32 and 31. It says, Seeing that was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. But He, God raised Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Verse 33, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. See, he is making this point that the Holy Spirit of God was saying through David then, namely, that Jesus is God. He goes on in verse 36. He says, Therefore, okay, you're tracking with this, Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified. Again, he he is saying for the second time now, you crucified him, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? See, what you see here is this amazing combination of the reality of grace and the reality of guilt. This fact that there is a God who who loves you and cares for you and came to this world, but you, through your sin and your mistakes... Your sins were were the things that separated you from God. Those sins were the things that were deserving of death. But God, in his sovereign love for you, decided, I am not willing to let there be a distance between you and I, and I am going to sacrifice my perfect son so that you can have a relationship with him, with me, and it will be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. See what's happening here, and why these people say that they were cut to the heart and they ask, What should we do? is because this combination of guilt and grace has cut their hearts finally to a place where they were willing to change. And see, most of us, we have a really hard time managing the tension as well as Peter did this tension between guilt and grace. See, most of us have tried it sometime in our lives, whether it was someone we love, someone who was employed by, someone who was just you know a friend or a relationship. We have tried to pass out these guilt trips on people, and so many times we've seen these guilt trips not work. But here's something that I want you to understand: most of our guilt trips don't work because they're not followed by a grace trip. Here's the deal: guilt trips do not get someone to where you want them to go. Grace trips do. Look at the outline here. Even if you just go into Peter's sermon, like if you take it from verse 14 all the way into verse 41, if you take the whole outline of his sermon, let me explain something to you that I found through studying. This is what's crazy here. How much of what he talks about is about grace, and then how much of what he talks about is about their guilt. Verses 14 through 22, grace. Verse 23, guilt. Verse 24 through 35, grace. Verse 36, guilt. Verses 38 through 39, grace. If you're keeping score, that's 21 verses about the grace of God that is being given to these people. And that's two verses about their guilt. And church, that is the ratio for revival. Because how many people have left and abandoned a church have left and abandoned, and have want nothing to do with anything that has to do with faith because we have done a really good job about making people feel guilty for who they are not and how they don't measure up. And what if we took some P's and Q's from Peter and started to apply more grace? Because the balance between the two, I can't show you any other way, It's very grace heavy. And my hope is that we would be a grace-heavy heavy church, because there is a beautiful outcome of that. Look at verse 38 and 39. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for all of you and your children, and for who all are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. Here's what I want you to understand. That the gospel demands a response see that's the fear about maybe all of these sermons being online not just mine but the plethora that you're seeing right now is that every time the gospel is preached the gospel demands a response and some of us we hear this, and maybe there's sometimes where things are kind of hit on some of those weak points where we go, ouch, that one kind of hurt. He's up in my kitchen, or some of us maybe we don't have any idea of really what it means to follow Jesus, and, and somebody lays that out, and we go, ah, yeah, it's it's not really time, and yeah, maybe I I can see there being a possibility for someone you know dying for my sins, but man, I want to live for myself for a little while longer. Every time we hear the gospel, we respond. And to not respond in a way that opens yourself up to say, I am in desperate need of a Savior. To open yourself up, not in a way like they did where they said, we are cut to the heart. What must we do? We feel this guilt because now we've seen full well the grace of God. Every time we don't do that, we get take a step closer towards a hard heart. The Puritans communicated like this. They said, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay and my question to you today is what are you going to let the gospel do to your heart will you ignore it or will you run towards jesus who gave his life for you so that you could experience what true life really is my prayer is that you would do what they did that you through the conviction of the holy spirit will go what must i do And that you would also do what they did. Say, Jesus, I I am repenting of my old life. I am turning away from this. I am giving my life to you. I am being baptized. And then I am going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If that's you and you're watching this, you want to make a decision to follow Christ, you you can fill out that um, that, that link that's going to be there in the comments. Our hope is that you, through hearing the gospel, would respond to the gospel and take a step in your faith. Because there's a God who, who stepped down out of heaven stepped up a hill called Golgotha and took your sins to a cross so that you could have the life that you actually need. My prayer is that you would do that today. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made and that we have been given this grace that you have longed for every one of us to open our hearts to, to open our minds to, and to call out to you from So many times we have let our hearts continue to grow hard, but Jesus, I pray that you would soften our hearts. That for the weary sinner who's been running for far too long, you would allow them to surrender to you. To find the hope. To take that step in baptism. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. To finally have the power to break free from the sins that they're living in. To break out of this dull, mundane, monotonous life. find the real life the abundant life that you promised to give in your name amen church as we go into a time of communion now i'd invite you to grab whatever elements that you're choosing to participate in communion with bread juice wine as we get ready to celebrate this that it would not be lost on you how miraculous this this moment even is that we as the same people who had we been in that crowd and and again you kind of were in that crowd because your sins were in that crowd that Peter looks at you and looks at me and goes this Jesus who was given over by the foreknowledge and the plan of God you crucified him now we can come to moments like this and despite the fact that we were complicit in his crucifixion we now get to be counted as his friends as brothers sisters as sons and daughters because of what he did because his body was broken for your sins and my sins sins of all mankind Taste and see. Blood of Christ poured out for the givenness of all mankind. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Jesus, we praise you for your broken body and your poured out blood. We are nothing without you. Pray your Holy Spirit would be invading homes right now they would feel your presence near to them that you would bring changes that you would move hearts closer to you that you would allow revival to break out that people now would begin to feel the guilt that once weighed so heavy on their heart be replaced by your grace in your name amen Church, I mentioned it earlier, but I want to reiterate the fact that I have been blown away by how generous we all have been during this season. I believe it's positioning us to be at a place where we don't have to make any rash decisions it's positioning us in a place so that we can as we get ready to move back towards um, gaining some of the momentum that we have I believe created in this we will be resourced and equipped to reach people that we never have before to serve people who we never have before to minister to you and, and I and the families that are here already like we never have before and God's using your generosity to make that happen And for that, I thank you and I invite you, if you have not taken that step of trust and faith in Jesus, to take it today. I love you, church. I can't wait to be back with you sooner rather than later. Amen.